Today, we're kicking off our series, uh, Enthroning Jesus, our last one in the Gospel of Mark. And so with that being said, let's get into it. As long as there has been kings, there have been triumphal entries, giant parades proclaiming and presenting, quite literally shouting, there's a new king in town. These parades not only presented for those giant crowds who now is ruling, but those parades set a precedent and a pattern for how that king, that ruler would rule. And so if in a triumphal entry, you know, the king coming into the city, if you saw lots of gold and purple of exotic animals and exotic foods and fruits, you could expect this king's reign to be defined by economic growth and trading. At the same time, if you saw that king come in and all throughout it was parading soldiers, elephants and chariots, right? All of these, these, these matters of, of warfare, you could assume that this kingdom's reign is gonna be focused on military force and even dominance or protection or safety behind it as they saw. And the thing is, is our nation is no different. With each president, we have a sort of inaugural parade through the Capitol. And this inaugural parade is in many ways, it's our American version of an ancient triumphal entry. An inaugural parade displays for all of the nation, not only who is now president, but how they will rule and what will define their time in office. Within their inaugural parade and within that inaugural address, you have a little distillation of what is going to grow and become the major components of their presidency or major movements and markers of their presidency. You can uh, look through uh, the inaugural parades of American history and find this to be the case. I mean, it's no wonder that uh, during the Cold War, the, year, the election years of 1953, 1957, and 1961, mixed in with the inaugural parade beyond just a uh, military was also tanks, and very regularly, giant nuclear warheads being paraded down through the National Mall. Why? Because in the middle of the Cold War, what was the Cold War all about? It was about this nuclear tension that was there. So, of course, with a new president, with a new king in town, what would he parade for all of the nation? And in doing so, all of the world to see, of course, the nuclear arsenal. Other examples of this was uh, the first inclusion of Native American and African American people to participate within the inaugural parade came in 1865 at Abraham Lincoln's second inauguration. Because there's no consideration that this was two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. It, it, it heralded too, at least what was the pre presentation of, of Abraham Lincoln's presidency and what he was going to be or what he had been about. In 1917, women joined the inaugural parade for the first time, setting precedent for that presidency in the 19th Amendment, the women's right to vote, three years later within that presidential term. With World War II and FDR, him being inaugurated in the midst of that war, there was a strange inauguration. It was a very low, kind of quiet, simple thing with no parade. Why? Because this war loomed over the nation and in doing so was going to loom over FDR's own presidency. You can just sit down and go through Wikipedia this week. It's really interesting to watch uh, George Bush and his inaugural address and then thinking about what his presidency, the highs and the lows and what would come. You could just see it wrapped up and distilled there. Even looking at 2017 with President Trump's inauguration, with the thing that most of us remember most immediately was the conversation on Twitter and the claims of fake news over how many people had turned out versus the, right? You saw in this little moment, this thing that would go on to become a major component of his presidency over 2000 times over those four years, calling out the fake news on average one time a day. Regardless of what you think, the, you have there in the inaugural parade, the inaugural address, the moments around it in tiny everything that's gonna become the major components of that individual's reign or rule or presidency, their time in office. So this past week, we witnessed the inauguration of President Joe Biden, and it was a strange one, strange for a handful of reasons. I mean, we saw the absence of the normal hundreds of thousands of people on the National Mall or in the grandstands for his inauguration with, you know, just, I think it was less than a thousand people there, all socially distanced and masked, that didn't keep Garth Brooks from kissing everybody he was as he finished up singing Amazing Grace. 
We, more than the small attendance of, I mean, what, what, what do we see wrapped up there in that socially distanced, the strange element of his inauguration? Well, what is going to be the, one of the main components of the Biden presidency, the main things they have to overcome is COVID-19, vaccination plans, and then the economic recovery of what that's going to look like, you know, in the fallout of this pandemic. So here you have there in little, what's going to become a major part of his presidency. Even more than that, you had the 25,000 National Guardsmen as compared to at normal election cycles over the years, somewhere around 8,000, 25,000 points to the divided status of our nation with those on the far ends violently so. And in the face of all that, through the inaugural address, a sort of call to unity from President Biden that in many ways seemed to ignore the deep trench running through our nation right now. So here, here's what you see as we looked at this past week. We see in short, in small, distilled, not just who is now president, but these symbols and little pictures and portraits of what his presidency is going to be about, what it's going to face, how he's going to bring about his time in office. Now I say all of this to say, Today, as we set our eyes on the final series, the final third of the gospel of Mark, we find ourselves witnessing another strange inauguration in what's been called the triumphal entry of Jesus. As the King, as the Christ, as the Messiah, he comes into the capital city of Jerusalem. And so in this text today, we're going to be seeing, yes, there is a new King in town, but also beyond just asking, who is he? We're going to be looking at wrapped up these questions of how will he rule and what will define his reign. Our notes as usual are there in the chat. You can follow along. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get right into Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse one today. And so father, in the midst of a week of inaugural parades, uh, we find one more here today on Sunday. And so my prayers that you might give us eyes to see the tension, but also the joy, but also the challenge of what we find in Mark 11 here today in the triumphal entry and even the triumphal address of, of, of Jesus. Help us to see the sort of king that he is, that we in doing so may be a part of the kingdom he really seeks to bring. Pray that you'd speak through your word as you do. And God, may we have hearts that are soft enough to receive from him what he is trying to bring about. In your name we pray, amen. And so Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse one. Now, when they, being Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the, house, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it with you. And if anyone says, uh, why are you doing this? Look at them and say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing by said to them, what are you guys doing untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus has said. And so they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. As they make their way into the city, many spread their cloaks on the road and spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were all shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And so here we find today, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed and awaited King. He makes his way down from the Mount of Olives into the capital city of Jerusalem. And like any other triumphal entry, like any other inaugural parade, it is packed with imagery and declarations of who he is and what he is about. In verses two through seven, we sound this interesting element of first and foremost, that he rides in on this colt or a, a donkey whether it was acquired through prophetic foresight and some kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi, like these are not the droids you're looking for, or some previous arrangement made by Jesus intentionally for this moment. The fact is that it is a symbol, this donkey, a mode of transportation for kings and for Messiah figures throughout Israel's 
history. Not only that, loaded with prophetic anticipation. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10 has this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Mount Zion, which is the city of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, there it is, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus knows the history of Israel. He knows the prophets of Israel. And so he intentionally says, give me a donkey. We're riding into town. As he makes his way, he joins in with these large crowds. As we know from later in the story, this is right during the time of Passover when well over a million people have out flooded the city as they come in worship and in sacrifice of remembering the time that God freed them from the oppressive empire of Egypt. So it's actually a, a uniquely challenging time for Rome because Rome had only, of all of the nations that they conquered, only one nation would not take on the worship of the Roman gods. And it was the people of Israel. And in particular, Passover was a dangerous time for revolution because this was the time where they're retelling the story of when Jesus saved us and Jesus, God saved us through Moses, through his Messiah from the oppressive empire of Egypt. And so you, as a Roman, you've got to be worried about this time of year. In particular, when you're remembering this story with a dinner that includes four glasses of wine and you got the whole city doing that. So no wonder that Pontius Pilate, who normally had his palace in Caesarea, he comes over and at this time of year, he would move to the palace in Jerusalem. He was there to quell insurrections. He was there to quell any violence that would happen. There's a whole side point here of Jesus as he's coming in from the uh, Mount of Olives that around the same time, if not the same day, if not the same hour, Pilate would be having his triumphal entry over from Caesarea into Jerusalem, not riding a donkey, but a great white horse, not surrounded by crowds, but by parading military leaders. It was a sign to all of Jerusalem as you celebrate Passover that this week, it's great, do whatever you want, but just remember who's in charge whether days or hours or even minutes apart, these two figures are riding on triumphal entries into the city of Jerusalem. And here we find these crowds that know exactly what Jesus is claiming as he rides the donkey. And so what do they do? They react in kind. They throw their cloaks on the ground. It's the red carpet treatment, always, always associated with royalty and their acceptance of him. They take these leafy branches or palm fronds as we get from John's gospel and the palm frond was a symbol of the military insurrectionists, the Jewish group that was known as the Zealots. Whether it was after the time of Jesus or around it, to raise a palm frond was a capital offense in the Roman Empire. It was akin to a zealot act. It was, it was, it was, it was nothing more than basically a military statement of one of insurrection. So these crowds are bringing all of this together. And for them, with their Maccabean revolts in their history. And now here at Passover, they see Jesus and they're ready to go. They're, in their mind, the revolution is at hand. And so the palm fronds go up. It's so ironic that on Palm Sunday, we raise up our palm fronds and like, you know, peace and love and here for, for them. That what this means is, is it's, 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 t Rome's, it's Rome's time to fall. And this is all joined together as they sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, singing Hosanna, this word that means save us, we pray. It comes from 2 Samuel and 2 Kings. All of these is an address to a king, particular to the son of David or to David himself, the king. And so what's so profound is all throughout Mark's gospel, anytime anybody gets close to calling Jesus the Messiah or the Christ or son of God, any of that royal imagery, he shushes them up. He tells them to be quiet. Don't tell anyone. And here there's a moment that Jesus's whole thing is changing and he welcomes and receives all of it. Even some of the, these, these ones that are, okay, doesn't this seem like insurrection? Doesn't this gonna get Rome on Jesus? Jesus receives all of it as he makes his way into the city and specifically not just the city, but the temple. Now, if you were to ask any ancient Israelite to tell you what was the most important place on earth, their response would be the temple. It is the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's space and our space intersect, where the creator God takes up residence among his people. Yes, all of the earth is the Lord's and he is in some way omnipresent. He is all places, but the temple was the unique personal presence of God where his space and our space intersected. 
It was a sacred place because it's where Israel's priestly representatives would would come into God's presence to uh, express thanks on behalf of the people, praise on behalf of the people and atonement for sin through the sacrificial system, through varying animals. The temple attracted Israelite pilgrims annually for different holidays and feast times throughout the year. All of this, the temple was the symbol and the cornerstone of Israel's relationship to the creator God. It was the foundation of their faith a faith that said that God has taken us as his people and he dwells with us. It was the place of prayer. It was the fountain of forgiveness through the sacrificial system. And more than just religious, the temple was deeply tied to these political ideas of royalty. The temple was at first promised to David and then built by his son, King Solomon. Though destroyed with the exile, it was then rebuilt by those returning exiles, but then it was furnished and kind of made even better Uh, by King Herod. See, all of this is coming together, these deep ideas of both religious and political. The temple was the capital and the national cathedral, you know, kind of rolled into one. And even more with a temple being both a religious and a political statement, Jesus's expectations that were coming on him as the Christ, as the Messiah, were never purely just that Jesus would be a king. In all of my talk of Jesus being a king, I've been waiting to get here to to help offer a a helpful counter within the ideas within Judaism. That the Christ, the Messiah, was never purely just a royal political king figure, but was also a priest. A priest, one who is a representative of God's people and a representative of God to his people. A mediator between them both. And so this idea, this, this idea of the, the Messiah being a king who is both a royal king, but also this mediating priest goes all the way back to Genesis 14 with this enigmatic character called Melchizedek. But even further, it goes back to Genesis 1 to the opening pages of the Bible where humanity is depicted as a royal priest, as the image of God, as, as a way of talking not just about kings, but about priests. But the Garden of Eden itself depicted and talked about as a sort of temple kingdom. And so as we have building up and the king is making his way into the temple, all of these expectations of Israel, the hope of Israel was all about this priest king who would come to establish his temple, this new garden of Eden, that he would make earth garden again, usher in his kingdom in a day when swords and spears would be retooled into gardening tools because war was no more. As Micah 4.4 says it, this was the hope. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Micah 4.4 quoted by Amanda Gorman in her incredible uh, poem this week, The Hill We Climb, her also pulling from the, the Hamilton phenomenon. In its original context, it was not a simple statement about humanity, about democracy, about anything. The hill that we climb, you could say, was Mount Zion, the temple mount. The temple specifically with its awaited and anointed priest king. That would be the day when every man shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree and no one will make them afraid. So in the Jewish perspective, priest and king, temple and kingdom, all of these are wrapped up. They are not distinct ideas. And so the donkey, the palms, the cloaks, the singing, the temple, all of these are the trappings of a Jewish triumphal entry. And Jesus is leaning into it headlong until at the very end of verse 11, the record scratches with this anticlimax. He gets in and goes to the temple and And it just immediately goes to quiet, it seems, as Jesus walks around the temple and he looks at it. The the word in the Greek that Mark's writing in is about inspection and about assessing. It's like Jesus is casing the joint. He's looking around at the temple. He's taking it in. It seems as though it's, it's quiet for the day. All of the work's been done. It's late at night. And Jesus kind of takes the look over and then he heads back to the suburb of Bethany for the night this anticlimactic moment, a very strange way to end his inaugural parade. And it sets the disciples and us up with an anticipation for what's going to happen tomorrow. Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came back into the city from Bethany, Jesus was hungry and he saw in the distance a fig tree that it was in leaf, its leaves had grown. And he went over to it to see if he could find anything on it. 
But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And so if last night's triumphal entry, but then leading to this kind of quiet temple inspection was strange and not weird enough here this morning, it's, we turned to absolutely bizarre. Even more when we note that this is the last miracle in all of Mark's gospel, apart from, you know, the resurrection itself, that, that Jesus's pattern of all of his miracles being about giving life and giving blessings. And then his final one is one of cursing and even life taking. Is Jesus here just hangry? Did he not get enough breakfast? And so he's mad and, and even ignorant of when trees grow, as Mark says, it wasn't even in this season. So let's, let's deal with what is happening here a little bit. And then we'll come back to the question of why. Now, the first thing we have to acknowledge is Jesus is a first century Galilean. He is not ignorant of when figs are ripe. It's a common knowledge for people that live in and around fig trees for their lives. They know when the time is ripe for figs. So this leaves us with a couple of options of what Jesus is going for. The first would simply be that Jesus wasn't actually anticipating that there would be figs there, but this was some kind of strange sign or act that he's doing. The other one, the one that I'm more prone to lean towards is that Jesus is looking for these small little early ripe figs, these little gross or, you know, protuberances of what would become the fig that, that you could actually eat even before they were fully ripened. It was considered a delicacy. Hosea 9, uh, we actually have in the Bible, someone talking about these little early ripe figs that would kind of bloom alongside the leaves. And so Jesus goes to look for maybe some of these little, you know, niblets that he can eat as they make their way into the city. And all he finds is growth without fruit. He finds growth without fruit. And so he curses it. No one's going to eat from this tree ever again. Now this helps us explain what, but why? What's the point of this strange act? Is Jesus just hangry? Now our foodie Mark is here once again, giving us the top slice of bread on another one of his Markin sandwiches where he cuts a story in half, places another story in the middle so that those two stories lean into and speak to one another. So let's look at the middle. Let's go into the meat of the sandwich if this is the first slice in verse 15. So Jesus now comes into Jerusalem. He enters the temple and as he does so, he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, overturning the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And then he began teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but here you have made it a den of robbers." The chief priests came, the scribes heard and they saw what was happening and they began to seek a way to destroy him because they were afraid of him because all the crowds were astonished at what he was doing and what he was saying. And then when evening came, they went out of the city back to Bethany. So Jesus' inaugural week here moves from weird at first to bizarre with the tree to now downright shocking. And even if we were a little honest, frightening that we would find Jesus behaving this way. The same Jesus who all throughout this teachings, he's been calling for nonviolence and chastising his disciples when they draw the sword or even talk about fire coming from heaven. Here enters into this forceful act of driving out both those who sold and bought. The buying and the selling in particular, the buying of these clean animals for sacrifice. As you have a million plus uh, uh, pilgrims that are coming in for Passover and making of the sacrifices, there was just no way that you would bring out, you know, lambs and all these animals, even pigeons and different things. And so you would sell those things and then get money, bring the money to the temple. And then that's where you would buy and sell the, the right sacrifice, one that was clean and ready to go. Similarly, he doesn't just drive them out. He overturns the table of the money changers because in the temple, the uh, defiled money of the state of Rome was not permitted to be utilized for the purchase of sacrifices. They saw that's, that's Caesar's money. You don't bring that in here. And so they had to have an exchange rate where you would come in and bring your Roman money and have it exchanged for temple currency, the equivalent of like Chuck E. Cheese tokens. And then he not only drives them out, but then those who sold pigeons. Pigeons were the sacrifice that were particularly set apart within the law for those who could not afford to give up a lamb, but still 
acknowledge their need for sacrifice, for forgiveness of sins and for atonements. The pigeons is, is specifically those who are selling these pigeons to the poor. And then even more than that, Jesus doesn't allow anyone to carry anything. The anything word there points more towards these vessels for sacrifice. It's not people, you know, carrying, you know, their book bags and he knocks out, you know, and takes their lunch money. It's these vessels that carried the sacrificial animals on their way and carried money back and forth. This was, he's, he's halting everything within the temple. He, he grinds the entire temple proceedings to a halt. In effect, in his day, based off what we know about the temple, this would have been seen as Jesus storming the temple and in storming the temple, storming the capital. It made them and us gasp. What does this mean for how Jesus will rule? And what does this define about his reign? Following what he's just done, he speaks for the first time with an inaugural address, as we might call it, which Mark summarizes a longer teaching, most likely in two quotes, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. The first from Isaiah 56, that Jesus looks around the temple, he sees what's going on and he says, my house, referring to the temple, shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. Is it not written? Jesus here not only identifies himself as God calling the temple his own house, which already is a step too far, but then he recounts the intent and ideal of God's house, specifically as a temple, as a house of prayer, a place of communion, a place of worship, a place of the presence and relationship of God, all meeting within his people. And in particular, for all the nations, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56, the word here being nations, not necessarily just nation states, but the word for Gentiles, the word for non-Jewish peoples, the word for people unlike the Israelites. It is the word ethnos. It is the basis for our word ethnic. Jesus looks at the temple and his claim of what it's meant to be was one that was for all people to come and be able to participate and commune with the living God. And that's not what Jesus sees as he walks into the temple. It's not what he saw as he looked through the night before and he saw the money changing tables and the seats with the pigeons as he looked it all over. What Jesus sees is not the house of prayer for the nations, but what he calls, in quoting from Jeremiah 7, a den of robbers. Jesus sees, and what we, what we know historically from other, other authors and writers about what was happening within the temple at this time. He sees that the whole system of how the temple works is, well, who sacrifices the, who makes the sacrifices? The priesthood. Who are the ones that indicate and choose whether or not a sacrifice is clean? The priesthood. Who is the one that, that ordinates the money changing system? The priesthood. Who are the ones that sell? The priesthood. Jesus sees this whole system and he sees within it that it's not only ripe for injustice and for thievery and robbery, not only is it ripe for it, it has become just that. Jesus sees these money changers who have the exorbitant trans, uh, transactional rates where in order to go from Roman money to temple money is, is definitely in favor. It's not a one for one. Jesus sees those buying and selling. And based off of, again, what we know from other historical writers is this huge, almost extortion level rates of what it would cost to buy differing levels of sacrifices. And in particular, the one that had the biggest jump was pigeons. The sort of sacrifice that was the set apart, the little thing that those who were poor, that they could still offer to make some level of forgiveness and sacrifice to God. That was the one that was the most ripe for these huge rates that went up. Jesus sees this and he sees that the whole thing has become a den of robbers. The whole thing is theft. The priests are no longer mediators between God and man, but mediators between man and their checkbook. And if it weren't bad enough, all of this is happening by most counts within what was called the court of Gentiles. Now the court of the Gentiles is you had within the temple system, these varying levels and degrees of who was allowed where with, you know, the high priest only allowed in the Holy of Holies to make the sacrifices and then priests. And then you had Israel at large. And then you had around within that what was called the court of the Gentiles. And so this was a, 
for some, on one level, an acknowledgement of Israel's special relationship to God, the one that he saved out of Israel. And at the same time, however, lest we think that this is some kind of segregation, an architectural imposition of inclusion. There we go. There's, there's all of my big words for the day in one sentence. It was a way of imposing the inclusion of the Gentiles in the same way that if I built a house and then I, I chose to make a mother-in-law suite that you know my wife could not be frustrated with me when I started talking about having my mother-in-law come to live in the mother-in-law suite that I just built. Jesus in effect says, you got the layout for the temple and there was a court of the Gentiles, a set aside space that would be for their prayers, for them communing with the living God, for their worship. And this is the area that you have turned into a loud, stinky, busy bazaar of you selling all of these goods at the extortion level rates that you are. And so no wonder Jesus sees this. The priesthood are not only stealing from people. They're stealing from God, his house of worship for all the nations. And I mean, this is Jesus's inaugural address. Him for the first time in the temple, the first public words that we get of him is he's tearing down the whole system. And this temple is not simply him cleansing it and going, okay, we're gonna have a restart. We're gonna get back together and we're gonna move forward. From quoting from Jeremiah 7, he suggests that cleansing is not enough. What's required is the destruction of this entire system. Not simply for a new temple to be built, but in many ways, this thing is so corrupt, it's gotta be torn down. What's profound for us to see is that though in some ways we may see Jesus behaving like the mobs earlier this month, his storming of the temple is an act against many of the same reasons that the mob stormed the Capitol. He's storming the Capitol because it's become a den of ethnic superiority of the priesthood, not, not giving the attention to the Gentiles that God called for them to give. It's become one of ethnic superiority, of, of turning a blind eye to injustice and one of deceit, of lying and conniving to get one's way. And unlike the insurrectionist mob, Jesus is coming as the Messiah, as the royal priest, as God himself and his claim to call it my house, where he is fully within his own jurisdiction and rights to do so. And so more than a political protest, this is the owner of the house coming home and he's turning it all over in judgment. And so it's, it's less like Jesus is behaving like the mob here, but almost as if this week, if, if after President Biden was sworn in, he turned around and went up the stairs back into the Capitol and began to tear down the Capitol. You know, we're getting live footage as we're watching him tearing things down and he's yelling, looking at the camera and he's saying, this whole thing is corrupt. It's got to go. Your elected leaders are nothing but thieves. After just being sworn in as president, you can imagine the like, what in the world? This is in effect what has just happened in the temple. It's the great high priest who he's canceling temple service. The king is judging his kingdom. It's the president tearing down the Capitol. And he sees that the holy, set apart, sanctified, special place that was meant to be the temple has become uncleaned, defiled. It's become a house, a den of robbers. And so Jesus here lays out in his actions and speech, as hard and as frightening and as weird as it may be to us, how he will rule and what will define his reign. And here on day one, we find that Jesus has come to overturn the temple. He has not come to cleanse it so that it can do what it was always meant to do. He's not cleansing, he's condemning. He sees the temple. That sign is, is Israel's faith is in fact a faithless figment of what it was meant to be. The house of prayer has become a den of robbers fueled by injustice and idolatry. This house that was meant to be the fountain of forgiveness has been infected with the priest's economic selfishness. And so this revolutionary declaration comes as Jesus stares down the ruling religious class and he pokes the bear. And he's not gonna stop. Over the next few chapters, he keeps coming back to the temple. He keeps coming back to this message in and around the temple. This thing has got to go. This thing is corrupt. And at the source of it all is this corrupt and broken priesthood. And so it's no wonder we find they were seeking a way to destroy Jesus. 
But why not then? I had this conversation with Lorenzo this week. Why didn't the temple guards arrest him? It's because the crowds that have been living underneath this corrupt priesthood for years can't believe that finally someone's doing it. So there's a crowd of support that's coming around Jesus, listening to his teaching, agreeing with him. And so the temple police won't get involved and the priesthood are watching at a distance because if we try to go take Jesus now, then there will be a mob here in the temple and they will take us instead of him. And so they go away in fear trying to find the way, how will we separate Jesus from the crowds? How will we get him and put an end to this? And so Jesus's death, as some would say, is no accident. Beginning here and what you're gonna find over this enthroning Jesus series, he is poking the religious ruling class. He is provoking them and he is going to allow their own sinfulness to then from that poking manifest itself into such a hardness of heart that it will turn itself in violence against him where he will be then arrested, crucified, and he will die. And the good news being with it, rise. But as we come back to the story where we're at, the day comes to a close the religious leaders go out to find a way to get Jesus apart from the crowds. Jesus and his disciples head back to the suburbs. You know, they go to you know, Applebee's for dinner and then they crash at you know, somebody's house. And so what in the world is that? Where do we go from here? Well, let's remember that we're in the middle of a sandwich right now. So let's come back to the bottom piece of bread with verse 11 through 20, where of course, what would we talk about other than a fig tree? As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree that Jesus had cursed now withered away down to its roots. Peter remembered what Jesus had said the day before and said, Rabbi, teacher, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And with this crunch, we get the final slice of bread in the sandwich. Tree, temple, tree. We're now able to understand that the cursing of the tree and what Jesus did in the temple are one and the same. The fig tree was the time-honored symbol of not just Israel, but in particular, the temple to whom God in Jesus has now come looking for its fruit, for its faithfulness, for its prayer, for its forgiveness, for the reconciliation of the nations. And Jesus as God has come to his temple tree looking for fruit. And though he has found greenery and leaves and external growth, he has not found the fruit that he is looking for. There is outward religious profession in plenty, but it's withered and it's sick. And so like the tree, like the temple, Jesus curses them both, withered and fruitless. It's the tree and the temple of doom. And so Israel, as Jesus sees it, is going to continue in this way of being withered and fruitless. And the later destruction of the temple in AD 70, some 40 or so years from this moment, as Rome comes in and crushes Israel underneath those zealots, remember the palm branches, finally stepping up and swinging the sword at Rome, that the fall of the temple was only the final outward sign of what Jesus was prescribing and saying it happened here. And so what Jesus died to the fig tree and that strange act is what he did to the temple. He came seeking fruit and finding none, he announces its doom. As Hosea 9.15 prophesied, because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. That is my temple as the Lord speaks and I will love them no more. Strong words. All their rulers, that'd be the temple priesthood, are disobedient. Ephraim, which is a nickname for Israel, is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no more fruit. Do you see the temple and the tree imagery right here together? So Jesus has not come to cleanse and reform the temple system. He has come to turn over itself like he turns over its tables. Now, I, I felt the need in my notes this week just to have a quick note here on like the anti-Semitism that can develop when we read Jesus's words here around Israel and around the temple is to note here that this is not white Jesus talking about Israelites of the Jewish people. It's a Jewish rabbi talking to his Jewish disciples. What he's dealing with here is a larger issue than, than Judaism. He's dealing or, or with, with the Hebrew people. He sees a problem that in some ways encapsulates a problem that is true within all of humanity, one of fruitlessness, one of idolatry and injustice. And so in calling his people, he's making way for something new. 
He's not talking about destroying Israel, but ensuring that Israel actually fulfills its commission of being a place that draws the nations together. But the disciples, and maybe we may ask them, okay, so if the temple was such a huge component of the vision and mission of what God was going to do through Israel, and now Jesus is saying he's going to overturn this, what if God's promises and God's plan to establish the temple? To make earth garden again, the fig tree, not having anything to fear, to inaugurate the kingdom of God. If Jesus is getting rid of the temple, what then? Mark eleven twenty two, our final kind of little text section here. And so Jesus answers Peter, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who's also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is moving on to some kind of like random, like we were dealing with temple, borderline insurrection, triumphal entry. And now Jesus is like faith to move mountains. What? seems like some other random teaching, but it's actually deeply rooted. A couple of connection points to help you see this. The first is noting that unlike it's often quoted, this is not simply talking about faith to move mountains, but faith to move what Jesus says, this mountain. You see that in the text. So the question is, what mountain? Where, where are they? Where are they? They are in and around Jerusalem. They are in and around the temple. They are in and around Mount Zion. And so when Jesus says that this mountain may be taken up and thrown into the sea, he's saying Mount Zion, the temple mount, the giant mountain, that's really a big hill, that the temple sits on. Jesus says the one with faith can be overturning this. This is faith to move this mountain, to throw this into the sea, to do away with this mountain. And so Jesus here is making a far grander claim than faith that can move mountains or whatever. He's making a claim that faith that can move this mountain, faith that can turn over and even replace the temple. And those who have that faith in some way then become that new temple as Peter, who he's talking to right here in one of his letters would later write a new temple made of living stones made up of God's people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The one who has faith doesn't simply go around pushing mountains around. The one who has faith somehow overturns and replaces the temple. And in doing so, the people who do that become the new place where heaven and earth meet, the new place where God's presence is pleased to dwell in a powerful and personal way. It is where the kingdom of God is experienced in part. It is like the garden of Eden breaking into this world. And so Jesus's words and what we just read here at the end of our text today is not some random happenstance teaching on faith and prayer and forgiveness. It's him calling his new temple people to be the very things that was absent from the temple yesterday a new temple that is founded by faithfulness, loyal trust and allegiance to God alone and not to your pocketbook and not to Rome. A new temple that's empowered by its prayerfulness and asking that is rooted not in my own desires and what I'm looking for and what I want, but a conviction that God intends for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And my prayers are motivated by syncing myself up with and then praying for that. This new temple that is fueled by forgiveness. One of a reconciliation to not only one another, but through it, reconciliation to God. One where the new sacrificial system of this new temple is no longer in the sacrificing of animals, but in some way, our forgiveness of one another, the sacrificing of our own pride. This has been with me all week that Jesus overturns the temple and as he has cursed the old temple for its injustice does not simply call for them to not do those injustices. 
If Jesus is establishing a new temple, why doesn't he say, okay, new temple 2.0, here you guys go. So what we've learned from yesterday is don't jack up the rates on money exchange. Don't jack up the rates on pigeons. Don't, right? Make the court of the Gentiles that he doesn't cleanse the temple. He undercuts and goes to the root source, the problem behind all of this injustice, all of this idolatry, all of this robbery. He says, if this temple, these people would have been faithful, if they would have been prayerful, not just asking for what they want, but asking for themselves to be synced up with what God wants. And if they would have been a people committed to forgiveness and reconciliation, then the temple never would have gotten where the temple got. And so the new temple that he's establishing is no longer going to be a place where, but a people who, and with that, a people who are defined by faith and prayer and forgiveness. And in doing so, they now will become the house of prayer for all the nations. And so at this point, for Christians, for you and me, in the same way that Jesus looked around and assessed the temple, we need to take time to assess for ourselves, both individually and communally what it means to be the new temple and how we're doing at that. Because the warning of this story is either we can turn over our tables or Jesus will do it for us. In many ways, I believe that that is what he is doing with so much of American Christianity right now. And in the process, many identifying themselves as Christians, as tables are being turned over and people are being driven out. Because all too often, it has looked more like the old temple than the new. Like the old temple and the tree. There's this leaves of religious practice, this kind of outward green growth of, of, of church attendance and of what, you know, whatever name your religious thing of choice that people have looks like growth, but absolutely devoid of the fruit of faith and prayer and forgiveness. And yes, this can look like Jerusalem's robbery, their injustice, their racism, and their nationalism. Plenty of examples that we can give here. But it can also, can also look like a sort of half faith where we spread our trust to our idol du jour, which then becomes the seedbed of injustice when God takes the, the, the shotgun or the backseat to our other Priorities. This is what happened with Israel. This is how they got to the injustice and the racism, the nationalism that they did was when their national identity became commonplace and locked in with who God was himself. As Jesus says, this can also, this, this lack of full faith can look like doubt. It's this Greek, the same word that, that James pulls on of a wave that's um, in the sea driven back and forth by the wind. He's not simply describing those with questions, but those with a faith that is tossed back and forth with waves and shifts, a faith and obedience that comes and goes, a faithfulness and obedience that is dependent on every single situation and moment, depending on what I want, a faith that isn't really faith, but a faith that goes with whatever I want in the moment, like a wave tossed back and forth. This is so consistent within these temples today. And as we saw in the temple, we can be filled with prayers that are more about our desires than sinking our desires to God, what Jesus calls praying with believing or praying with trusting loyalty, with faith. What he says is prayer that works. Or it can simply look like the outright absence of prayer within our lives. Or it can appear when prayer becomes nothing more than an activity, a last ditch act of fear and terror. And yes, we are called to pray within our fears and within our doubt. But if that's the only time that we're going to prayer, it seems we're lacking the, the prayerfulness that he calls us to. And so faith, prayer, and if I may speak pointedly as your pastor, a lot of green growth, but the lack of the fruit of grace, of patience, of forgiveness, and pursuing reconciliation with one another. Do not miss the weight of Jesus's words back in verse 25. In effect, he says, if you do not forgive, God is in some way unable or unwilling to forgive you. How you deal with conflict within the church, within your family, within your whatever the name of the relationship is of immense importance to Jesus. 
All throughout the scriptures, we find it's absolutely clear that you cannot earn forgiveness, that it's a radical gift of God's grace. Yet Jesus makes abundantly clear right here, the one unwilling to reconcile with someone to forgive and then move forward is in some way unable to be reconciled to God. The only other commandment that gets anywhere close to this is is with Jesus's call to care for the poor. All through the gospel, salvation and forgiveness, it's all a gift of God's grace. And yet there are two things which seem to be, if you don't have these, then it's like you're, you're not even connected to the tree. And it's caring for the poor and forgiving others. To be unwilling to unreconcile with others is unwilling and unable to be reconciled to God. And so the warning before us today is we can let Jesus turn over our tables or Jesus will one day do it. And like the Jerusalem temple, like the fig tree, we'll call our fruitlessness out for what it is and say, they are stricken, their root is dried up and they shall bear no more fruit. And so if you're anything like me, you see these fruits in their absence. I see them in the American church. I see them in our church. And most frightening and disheartening and exhausting is that I see the absence of these fruits within my own life and within my own self. If we only look long enough, we'll see it. So how can we bear the fruit of faith, of prayer and forgiveness? How can we be this new temple that we were called to be? Broken temple and defiled priests as we may be, there is good news in this passage today because though Jesus condemned and cursed the old temple in his inaugural parade and address, his conversation with Peter reveals to us that he does not come solely as judge of the old temple, but as the committed builder and royal priest of the new. What he'll call himself, not only the priest, and we'll see next week, but the foundation, the cornerstone of this new temple. In doing so that in the midst of our prayerlessness, that he continues to be the prayerful mediator between God and us. As Hebrews 7 says, he's able to save the uttermost, those of us who are the most far gone. As we draw near to him, he lives to make faithful intercession prayer for us. Not only interceding for us, but but being the new priest who offers this sacrifice, not of pigeons and lambs, but of himself, a once for all, the new but also final sacrifice, obtaining forgiveness for us. In a way, cleansing, washing, and repairing and repurposing the broken and flawed temples that we are so that we might be what he called us to be. And even beyond that, he is the faithful presence that through his resurrection and then through the sending of his spirit that he now indwells this new temple with his resurrected power at work within us. And so the way to be the temple that God calls us to be, the way to be the the priesthood that we're meant to be, the way to be founded in faith, passionate in prayer, fueled by forgiveness is not by pursuing any of these things in and of themselves, but by building ourselves on the royal priest's work, on what Jesus has done and who he is. To keep looking at him, setting our eyes on him, building ourselves on that foundation and what he has done for us. And in doing so, finding that the main weight of that work has already been lifted by him. And in doing so, being the sort of temple that is not cursed, but is eternally cleansed by his And so let's pray.